Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. We've got some boxing history to talk today, which means I'm here with my dude, Eris Pina, CompuBox operator, and of course, fellow fight history lover like myself, and talking some grudge matches. Eris, what is going on, bro? How you doing? Everything is good, my man. Um, yeah, we're here to talk about some grudge matches because this past weekend, we just concluded a major one that had been um, brewing for, I guess number a number of years over a decade now it seems so um yeah that's what's Started going on way back in tenerife wait no that wasn't him that wasn't amir khan i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> no nah, dude it, is, it wasn't it's, amir khan that was some other goose <laughs> yeah some fool who went after him no i don't know uh precisely where it started but look it's kind of like a local grudge match we're going to talk about another local grudge match that we talked about that i brought up on a different show years ago but i think it's time for like an update that shit was like six seven years ago at this point but it's crazy we've been even doing the show that long but nonetheless <laughs> um you know this uk grudge match between kelbrook and amir khan uh it seems to have arisen because they were both really good amateur standouts and good lo local prospects and stuff like that coming up not quite at the same time uh kelbrook came a little bit after amir khan had developed and emerged but nonetheless you know kind of right around the same time roughly the same weight division kelbrook i think for financial reasons was calling out amir khan for a number of years amir khan's like screw that partially at least because he was waiting to face Manny Pacquiao or Floyd or Mayweather, which yeah. he never did. Oh, Mirkan. for years and years and years, he was trying to get a Mayweather fight. Like, Always really seemed like close, and he was like begging for it. He was, you know, in the early days of boxing Twitter. Yeah. He, he was he one, tried of, he like was one of the guys. Aggression. Yeah. He tried reverse psychology. He, he tried like all sorts <laughs> of tactics, dude. And Floyd was just like, get this guy out of here. And look, man, the fight might have been interesting for a couple of rounds because of con speed, but once Mayweather started time again, which he inevitably would have, you know, it was only a matter of time before Floyd would have scored a spectacular knockout <laughs> or something like that. You know what I mean? It probably would have been a pretty massive fight in the UK or it would have been, it would even, have been, even in Vegas, yeah. it would have been pretty big. And especially when Khan was like trying to go for it, I would say that was around, well, I mean, he was featured on HBO, what? mid to 2010s or like early 2010s around then yeah. stuff like that so like you know yeah for sure like right around the time of like the maidana fight would have been right around when probably he yeah. was angling for it and i mean you know he, i thought he could have lost that fight could have been stopped like twice during that fight wasn't came out on the winning end that's cool and he almost scored a first round knockout i mean only superhumans like maidana are able to get up from a ridiculous yeah. body shot like that because I remember when when that happened, me and uh, my partner we both like start, oh, started closing our laptops thinking it was over. Like, oh, this is an early night. Yeah. <laughs> we looked, we saw him get up, and we just kind of like, wait, what? 
yeah i remember that i remember and thinking like because he looked like he was like nah he didn't even have an interest getting up for the first couple I mean, seconds those, of the count those are what, those, those, those type of body shots when you get hit with a body shot like that bro you don't get up for 99.9 percent of the time the only exception is that like Maidana, but yeah this to give you a context though this rivalry has as far back as like has been you know people been calling for it or you know guys call like brooke calling them out um to go to give you a context of how far back this was brandon rios victor ortiz was still a fight that people were clamoring for at this point when this fight was first being discussed and people were just like clamoring for it i'm not i guess so yeah and um the other one that's always been the long-standing joke when it comes to marinating, uh, Juan Man Lopez against um, Yuri Orcas Gamboa. So that gives you a context of how far back this fight has gone. I mean, you know, it just never happened. And you thought it would be a no-brainer because both from the UK, both are on the same weight division, both have massive followings, everything like that, world championships. It, it was just, it, it kind of wrote, it wrote itself, but it just really never happened for whatever, you know, for one reason or another. Like you mentioned, Khan was trying to chase bigger fights. Brooke was chasing for Khan, but at the same time, you know, he just, he was one of those guys that didn't quite have the the star level, I guess, that Khan was at. He was a star in himself, but just Khan almost felt like, you know, he'd be relegated moving a step back if he gave Brooke the opportunity, whereas he was trying to chase, you know, guy, right. he was more established in America, so on and so forth. And then things just took different routes. Khan obviously went on to fight Canelo and other guys. Brooke went on to fight Triple G, got his face broken. Then um it seemed like there was some level it seemed almost like there was some amount of like spite too Mm -hmm. because like at some point it kind of seemed like Khan was just like nah i'm just not giving this guy that oh absolutely and that made brooke even more bitter and mad about it because he was almost arrogant about it almost just kind of like you're beneath me i don't you know no time for you type deal and yeah so this was just brewing for a long time but better late than ever i guess both guys now in the twilight of their careers and it made for a compelling fight because you just weren't sure what was going to happen. You know, before the fight, no one was really quite sure whether um, Khan's chin was going to hold up or Brooks' face was going to hold up or right. who was more, um, who was more shot or whatever it was going to be. Yeah, yeah. There was, there was a lot of questions going into it. Yeah, and, and legitimately, too, because Kel Brook has, you know, since uh, getting pretty badly injured against Gennady Golovkin, has been not he's been kind of out of the game, like at least not uh, at a level where he was like in the early 2000 or 2010s, mid 2010s, he was clearly pulling himself away from like European and uh, local level British kind of 140, 140, 100, uh, 147 pound, 154 pounds. You know, he had pulled himself <laughs> away from that level for sure. And felt as if he deserved that shot at Amir Khan. And, you know, uh, in terms of merit, he probably did or whatever. But, yeah, their paths just never truly converged. And it was tough to know exactly what Kell Brook was bringing to the table. It was just, I think a lot of people did feel, though, and obviously rightly so in hindsight, that once Amir Khan started getting tagged, that it's like a matter of time, like pretty much in any fight. Um, you know, he's he's got the hand speed. He's got good power. But his head movement is nil. His defense suffers awfully for it and, it's, and his chin's bad he has like remarkable recovery powers like i mean and that's old. always made for fun fights over the year because like you just mentioned with his really with his, with his hand speed and the way he throws punches and everything um he can go out to a fast lead and he's very flashy and it looks good especially early on when he was at his prime but all it took was one shot before he got sparked 
And perfect example would be the Danny Garcia fight, right? Like, he was, I mean, you know, Garcia was getting whooped in that fight. Like, Khan was doing what he had for the first two and a half rounds or whatever it was. Khan was looking superb. Garcia clearly was struggling with um, his speed and all that, but you could tell Garcia was still throwing with him. He wasn't just trying to counter after whatever. He was throwing, punching with Khan, which is what you have to do with a guy like that. And eventually one of those left hooks landed and, you know, the rest rode itself like that. But that's, like you said, that was the intangible about Khan. That's what always made him, everybody intrigued by him, is that all it took was one punch and then you see him skating around and it's like, you know, either he's going to survive or he's not. Like in the Maidano fight, for instance, when he, like we were just talked about with the body shots, and everything like that, he was almost hurt. He was almost taken out near the end of that fight. Was and was the Danny Garcia fight the one where he gets up and like he's like on the ropes and like they're like he's like, do you want to continue and shit? And he's like, yeah, 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 exactly. Yep, totally. And the ref's like, no, no. Yeah, because he went down again. It was he got up and he fought back. And it was just on instinct. You could totally tell. And I think he survived the round. And the next round, he went down again. And they were just kind of like, no. And he tried to protest, but you can see, like, the lights were on, but there was yeah. no one inside. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. I mean, you know, I got to give it to Amir Khan, dude. However you feel about the guy, he's clearly a dumbass. Like, I'm, you know, I say that with love because I'm kind of a dumbass sometimes. But, like, he's clearly yeah, a dumbass. But you know he's made some funky decisions. he's been fairly he's been fearless too he's not a guy that's ever tried to duck anybody but you know? that's what i was going to say was when it comes to his his boxing career when it comes to you know entertaining fights being entertaining dude he's always been entertaining sometimes not by choice sometimes he doesn't want to be entertaining but he's he's almost always been entertaining and actually really the instances where he hasn't been entertaining is when he's done like when he's stuck to a game plan and been able to do you know like what he what he wanted to do and but whatever i would take watching his career pretty much any day of the week because it's been fun it's been a, a pretty memorable pretty good career absolutely but you know all roads lead to an end and i think his career basically was going to was ended this past saturday you know, so like we said, there was a bunch of back and forth. People were wondering what was going to happen. Well, we found out within the first round what was going to happen because Brooke just dominated the whole fight. Um, yeah. You know, I did I, uh, I did the copy box numbers. I counted for Brooke that night. And right off the jump, you know, total punches, he threw 224 compared to 151 to Khan. So, you know, all roads lead to an end, right? And unfortunately, Khan's came in this fight because he totally wasn't in it. I mean he did show flashes of his speed early on and but brook was just much more accurate you can tell he was dialed in early on and like the first punches that he landed con was completely inept and just couldn't handle it and anything and what was really more disturbing was that like well you mentioned before con has never really had a good chin he's been hurt plenty of times or straight up knocked out but the first punch that brook really landed con was already on spaghetti legs completely and as uh, the Whisper song used to say, and the beat goes on because like that was just a straight whooping from there. Um, I counted, I counted the punches for uh, for Kel Brook for this fight, and Brook threw 224 punches and landed 79 punches. All right, that's you know pretty impressive off the bat right there. But the main thing is he threw 154 power punches that I counted, and he landed 64 of them. Khan only threw 69 power punches and landed 19 of them. Now you know. When people try to say, oh, you know, numbers of this and that, that really showed you, though, what was going on in this fight. Like, it was one-way traffic from the beginning to the end. And Khan was brave, and he did have a couple of moments where he did land a couple of combinations here and there. And Brooke, 
I will say show that he is past it too because I think like it, it was just one of those fights that like if Khan had a little bit more, it would have been more competitive. But Khan was completely shot. And Brooke was just, you know, beating on him from there. Like it was one of those things that like I think if he threw more to the body and just kind of varied his attack, he probably would have knocked out Khan sooner. But he was just trying to go straight up take him completely. Yeah. He was trying to time single shots. Like in you know, he uh it looked like he wobbled him in either the end of the first or early second yeah, round. It was, I remember which. It was the, in the beginning of the first round, Khan was doing the majority of the work. For like the first minute and a half, Khan was throwing and yeah. Brooke was just kind of like watching him and watching him. And then finally when Brooke decided to open up and land one of his chocolate brownies, what is that, the right hand he lands? Um, <laughs> Khan completely just like his legs just went, his eyes got all buggy that they usually do and you can just, you know, you see his hands go up and he's trying to keep it up while his, while his, his legs go. His skates. legs yeah. start doing the locking ice up skates. thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ice skates. Yeah. And, and and as soon as as soon as Brooke kind of settled down and stopped looking for a single shot, mm-hmm. he started landing cuz Amir Khan's his defense just isn't very good. And his accuracy was on point there, man. Brooke was really good with his jab, he was good mm-hmm. with his right hand. Um his uppercuts were beautiful. He was landing hooks. Um he wasn't throwing a ton of body shots, but the one with the times that he would throw, he was accurate with those two. Like he was just, you know, he was dialed in. So Long story short, um, it was probably best that the referee stopped the fight when he did because Khan was on the verge of getting knocked out really, really bad. But hey, uh, this chapter has ended. You know, both guys seem to um, seem like they buried the hatchet after the fight. They've said so more or less in the post-fight interviews and things that have come out afterwards. And um, I hope this is the end for Khan and for Brooke. This is probably he got to one more fight, um, big fight in him because I think both yeah. Connor Ben and um, Eubank Jr., have uh, called him out so we'll see man but regardless of all that that was um, a grudge match (laughs) yeah for sure it and for a number of years they've gone back and forth in the media and i often that's kind of why that's how a lot of these grudge matches wound up starting wound up you know kind of getting fueled or whatever between con and brooke for some reason like a really large portion of the shit they were talking was accusing the other of being gay and not coming out of the closet. I don't know why, but for some reason that featured really prominently in the trash talk. We'll stay away from the rest of with that for the rest of the grudge matches today, thank goodness. But what's a what's a really good grudge match or, or one I should say, I don't know. You say grudge matches in boxing and you think that's the one. Well, I mean, first off, I think I'm just going to stay with the UK theme on that because if you want to talk about absolute grudge matches, that probably still kind of resonates today, even though they look like they're on good terms. You got to mention Chris Eubank and Nigel Ben. <laughs> you have to bring that up because that is a that's about the definition of a grudge match when it comes to it. Man, yeah, I don't. I'm not gonna lie because I don't really know that much personal between them, or at least, or if yeah, other say, outside the know. ring stuff has happened, I don't know too much about it beyond that special that they did a few years ago where they're like you know, were dressed up as warriors and acting all crazy at each other. Beyond that, oh, I really when they started getting a little too feisty. Yeah, like a little too <laughs> snippy at each other, like Hearns and Hearns and Leonard on Mike's show a while back. But like, yeah, you know, yeah. but beyond that, you know, uh, yeah, dude, they clearly it was like the same guy. They're both like megalomaniac weirdos who would like kind of dress kind of eccentric sometimes, say weird shit you know, we're both very full of themselves, but also both very good fighters too. Like they're both, 
I'm I don't I'm not saying their styles were the same or anything, but they both were. Just but yeah, they were just like opposites though in their personalities. Like they had very unique personalities, but very opposite in how yeah, they, they clashed like, for sure. Eubank always exuded that very like arrogance. You know what I mean? Like he's you're everybody's beneath him, and you're kind of very like a so you you see like a stuck of individual the way he talks the way he is the dude that he knocked out in like five seconds it was like reginald dos santos i want to say and and the way he just poses right yeah and then he knocks him out and he just walks over to the camera and goes yeah for like 20 seconds just looking at the camera but for all of his all of his arrogance and all of his smugness and the way he was and psychology of it too because he was intimidating you know guy was completely sculpted out of his mind and as after he became champion and became like you know a superstar over in the UK um, with his gold trunks and the way his entrances would be and he just staring at you and all that and you know stoically I, I I totally get it but back then on the come up like Nigel Ben was the complete opposite Nigel Ben was a bad boy Nigel Ben was like a dude who came up very rough in the streets and like a guy that just you know like you meet him in the alley and front chances are you're gonna end up with your head stuck somewhere like like a really 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 bad dude. And Ben was much more known in the U.S. because he made he came over, you know, in the late '80s, um, made his bones in Atlantic City. Um, matchmaker Ron Katz was responsible, I think, for uh, for matchmaking a few of those fights. And but, they brought him over to. I don't know if that's why they brought him over, but as he was brought over, he sparred with a number of high-profile fighters too, mm-hmm. which also I think helped get his name out there. In well, the yeah, Boston they were trying to hopefully build him up because he was yeah. so exciting the way he was. They wanted to build exactly. him, like guys like Michael Nunn and Sugar Ray Leonard or Duran Hearns, whoever it could be. Um, they would have been fascinating fights because Ben was an animal at that point. Yeah. Um, watch his fight with uh, with Iran Barkley, for example. You know, it's only one round, but like Ben was nuts. Cam's out there just swinging while he drops Barkley, hits him while he's down a couple of times. Uh, if this fight happened today, chances are Ben would have been disqualified. But like in 1990, somehow he's able to get away with it. And then after the fight, in um, a very infamous interview with Alex Wallow, he's basically like, yeah, you know, I did what I had to do, whatever. I don't give a shit. <laughs> like, you know, very dismissive of what happened and saying, you know, how he hit him while he was down and just not really caring about it in general. So... But um, at that point in time, when their fight was getting, when their fight was being built up, um, you had it where like it, it was just, it, it was a, you know, I think you know, in 1990, this was the fight that was supposed to be like in the UK. You know, both guys at that point. I mean, Ben had lost to Michael Watson, I believe, but Eubank was undefeated, and even though it was for the Spurious WBO title, like that was about as big as it got at that point. Yeah, we've we talked about uh the group of kind of like British uh and uh, and Irish uh super middleweights that all had a kind of a round robin from around that time. I don't remember what show we did, but nonetheless, we talked about them before and we kind of went over some of the stuff that happened, but yeah, dude, Nigel Ben was clearly a really explosive athletic hard-charging hard-punching fighter anthony logan that's another fight that he had that was like two mm-hmm. rounds and it was like holy shit like nonsense oh it's he like, had a bunch of them early on yeah, a bunch a them. he was just like ben was this rampaging almost in the mold of like mike tyson but even more kind of reckless and wild uh, as a middle shit all the time and just bam you know like walk into something and then 10 seconds later he's like knocking his recovery was yeah it's like 
it i mean just jarring shit dude so you could totally see how he would speak to whatever uk public american public easy fighter to understand you know and no translation mm-hmm. either. but um chris eubank dude on the other hand he was he was always dressing fly you know or dressing weird the dude always had the kind of a funky sense of style and shit but also he's it actually they both spoke with a lisp but chris eubank far more prominently yes and like you know it's it was almost to the point where like his personality kind of just struck you as somebody you you would love to hate somebody you would just be like i don't like him i just don't like him and then so you wanted that's to how it kind of was for that fight and yeah. then the build up for this one too, like Ben was the much more established guy. He had just come off the knockout of Iran Barkley, like you said, and he was looking, you know, upon a lot of like major, major fights in the upcoming the upcoming months. Chris Eubank, on the other hand, had no one, you know, even though he was undefeated, he'd still not really separated himself to being like a top contender or anyone like that. He just had a big mouth and very cocky, arrogant, and all that. And Ben was that dude that just wanted to shut in. He was pissed off and he wanted to fight him, but. That didn't happen. That and it ended up being a very, very compelling fight. You know, in a fight that most people thought that Eubank would be wilting in. Nah, he matched Ben right away from the jump, and with his orthodox style and the way he fought and everything like that, he sl- slowly but surely wore Ben down. And um, yeah, and then he scored it. You know, ended up knocking him out in um, round nine, I believe it was. So that was like a big blow to that. But that also started, you know, an influx of like. A new, a new era in the middleweight, super middleweight era in the UK, you know, with a bunch of guys coming out there like that. But this wasn't the end of their rivalry either. You know what I mean? After that fight happened, um, Eubank now is an established superstar, in, not only in the UK, but he's making waves in the US. Like everybody kind of knows about that because that was a very, very good fight. And that was a huge win for him. And like you mentioned, the way he was and his personality and all that, like he, he's going to make no, he's going to make news. So Soon after, he has that very tragic fight with the contender Michael Watson, um, but makes a number of defenses before he eventually moves up to super middleweight. Same thing with Nigel Ben. Nigel Ben moves up to super middleweight, becomes WBC champion, has um, you know a number of defenses himself, and it leads to a buildup before they're going to have a rematch now, which is being televised on Showtime. Yeah, dude, they it actually seemed like uh, I don't, I'm not going to lie and say, uh, you know, I remember this at the time, like this is a, a predates, you know, most of my fandom and stuff like that. So yeah. I, yeah. I'm not going to say I didn't watch it live. Absolutely not. Yeah. Just a couple of years too late for me, but even so, you know, reading back about it later, this was one of those things where I remember like earlier in the days of the message boards and stuff like that. And we'd be talking about rivalries or we've talked about stuff that we need to go back and check out because, you know, we didn't see it live. And now, now we have better access to it. But the British super middleweights, the British middleweights were always mm-hmm. you know, from this era, what people would be talking about. Yeah, you need to go watch the, go back and watch the Eubank, Watson, Ben, Collins. You know, you need to watch the back and forth between these fighters. And so um, it was it was a true grudge match because obviously Nigel Ben winds up getting knocked or winds up getting stopped. And then as Chris Eubank kind of continues on, still though, I think Chris Eubank was having a difficult time finding respect outside of, you know, locally. And Nigel Ben was, like we've said, just far more, uh, far, far easier to relate to, far easier to watch. You know what I mean? Like Uh the language he spoke inside the ring was just a little bit more understandable for most fans. So, and also on top of that, he was, he clearly wanted revenge for being stopped. And I mean, you know, it's Nigel Ben, who are you going to tell him no to revenge? 
I mean, and if you look at if you look at their records with the upcoming fight too, like Ben was clearly on an upswing. He had beaten a lot of contenders and scored spectacular knockouts. Whereas Eubank, even though he was WBO champion, which wasn't very, very lightly regarded in the US, he was defeating good contenders. Don't get me wrong. You know, guys like Sugar Boy Malingo, who would go on to become champion. Ronnie, yes, it was a good fighter. Tony Thornton was a longtime contender. These were Lyndall Holmes was a former champion. These were all good guys, but at the same time, he was going the distance with all these guys too. He wasn't like really distinguishing himself as anything like, you know, above the pack. You know what I mean? So at that point, when it was coming to the rematch, most people thought that Ben would be able to beat him at this point because Eubank would always kind of like fight at the level of his competition. That was what I started reading about as a kid, more or less, was that like, Against guys, when he really had to step step it up, you know, he would step it up and look spectacular. But if he was just kind of going through the motions, sometimes he'd fight to the point where a guy that really had no business skill-wise trying to compete with him the way he was, he'd almost lose to him. You know, so... Yeah, it was almost and, like he needed yeah. to be motivated or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had to be motivated. And again, Threatened that kind of comes something. down to like arrogance and almost something like that. Again, that, you know, a person so beneath him that he doesn't feel like he has to push uh, to turn it on before, you know, to win or anything like that. But Ben was really, you know, to the point he, he was motivated. He was ready for this fight. He thought, you know, this was for a chance to right his wrong. And what makes it really bad is that, like, I'm not going to go into detail about the whole fight because it's on YouTube and it wasn't really anything spectacular, but by all accounts, most people thought that Ben won the rematch and instead he had to settle for a draw, which is even more bitter to swallow. <laughs> yeah. And, and that bitterness carried over to probably to now to, to some degree. I'm sure it does to some degree. Like, you know, these, all these guys that, that were rivals before and unless they really, really like hug it out and buddy, buddy, for the most part, you can always see there's some kind of underlying tension between them. And there definitely is always going to be some with, with Ben and Eubank, even if they're going to get along a little bit. There's still yeah. something. And and actually, I guess that analogy with Tommy Hearns and Ray Leonard is actually pretty damn spot on because uh, Hearns loses to Leonard in the mm-hmm. first fight by stoppage and then has to settle for a draw in the rematch. In the rematch in the fight so- most Everyone, yeah, that almost everybody thought he won, so it's like similarly, he's kind of pissed off, and you know, he never got the proper blah blah blah. And Tommy's my favorite fighter, so of course, I'm like pissed off for him. Fuck, right? No, I'm just kidding, but you know, uh, I I, I get it, you know, I I totally understand. But so, whatever year it was, I want to say it was like like 2008 or some shit like that, they were on some British show where they're where they're on their um man i'd have to even look it up i can't even remember all the details from the show i just know that they were both on some reality show and started jawing at each other and they damn near came to blows on the show like half dressed and shit. it was eubank you know he started he was like he was feeling himself and he was like yeah you know my muscles are feeling good i'm doing that he started throwing punches and he told nigel he was like we should have a little session that's what we do we should have a session <laughs> He was like, maybe, you know, just a little session. Now, what do you think? And then you, and then Ben gets all pissed off. We don't need to have a session. We can do this right now type deal. We don't need to go anywhere. And then they started like getting, they shove each other and they get all over there. <laughs> I'll tell you what, at least Eubank in this instant wasn't wearing his fucking pointy shoes. What the fuck are those, man? I don't know what the fuck is pointy sh- What's going on with his pointy shoes, Eris? And his dancing. Or, or like my favorite thing is him as a trainer when that one time, you remember the, Remember the time, like when when Eubank Jr. was in the corner, 
and Eubank Sr. was just staring at him, didn't say a word to him. <laughs> the whole he is the whole so man. eccentric. He is he literally so just stared strange. at him the whole time, and didn't say a word, just stared at him, and then walked out of the ring afterwards. And he just kind of like, wait, what? He's so strange, dude. Like I, he's just a strange fellow. I don't know what to say for him. But you know, I bless them because they gave us a, a fun trilogy or a fun uh, set Two of fights points. anyway. And you know what, too? If you're gonna vote for one for the Hall of Fame, you have to vote for the other. I That's hope kind of my feeling too. Yeah. Yeah. Like they they got to go in together. You know what I mean? And it'll no, be I'm cool to see them get inducted together to see what would happen. I'm sure they'd be getting along and you know take photos and be all joyful, but like just, it'd be interesting. <laughs> Dude, I'm gonna be there. I'm going to be there in the crowd. Hey, Nigel, Chris, that he'd kick your fucking ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucking instigating some shit. I'll make it fun. Well, speaking of instigating, dude, I got a, I got another grudge match to hit you with. And we don't have to spend a ton of time on it. Because like I said, we, we talked about it a number of years ago on a different show. But it's good revisiting. It is a good grudge match. Fun fight. Fun, you know, uh, backstory to it. And that's Johnny Tapia versus Danny Romero. Oh, absolutely. We talked about it on our Crosstown Rivalries uh, show. And that was like our second or third show, bro. Like that show was a long time ago. So in any case, um, Johnny Tapia, as we all know, you know, if you're a boxing fan, you should know. And also there's a good, a real good book out by uh, uh, Paul Zanin, who in, uh, with the help of Teresa Tapia, Johnny Tapia's widow, he wrote a book about Johnny Tapia's life and the kind of a lot of the things that he had gone through in his career leading to his unfortunate death. But nonetheless, if you know about Johnny Tappy at all, which most of us do, you know, he's a very mercurial character, a very hot blooded, um, intense guy in just about every aspect of his life. He loved intensely, you know, he, he cared for people and would do damn near anything to help them, but he couldn't help himself. And so he lived intensely in that way where he was, you know, he was on and off drugs for a number of years, I think specifically. Beautiful human. What's that? He was a beautiful human, though, man. He was extremely flawed. flawed, That's what he was. He was extremely human. Yeah, flawed, had a lot of demons and all that, but I had a chance Understandable demons. Yes, absolutely. 1,000% understandable. If you went through, if you went through what he went through as a child, I mean, I just... I hope nobody ever has to go yeah. through that, I'm, but yeah. like, I, I'm, I want to say it, but I'm just not going to, cause it's such a downer. I don't want to go there right now. Yeah, absolutely. Point is he saw some horrific shit and throughout much of his career, especially starting in the early nineties through the eighties, it actually seemed like he was doing all right overall uh, in his career and had his head screwed on pretty straight. But then starting in the nineties, um, he really lost control of his career and his life and had legal trouble off and on, really had to fight his way through life. And I, and I suppose through boxing in some ways as well, um, he, had, he was a very strong amateur and also had a, a good financial backing, especially for a guy at that weight, where at that weight, you just don't really see uh, you know, fighters at that weight getting much financial s- support below bantamweight below featherweight ish i don't know i mean probably even going up to like lightweight you just don't really see that money that much money pumped into fighters of that size and he had a lot of opportunities that you know speaking straight he blew that shit nonetheless he worked his way back and by the time he had worked his way back onto like a kind of an hbo level where he was fighting regularly and uh and doing very well he seemed to be you know on a pretty good run 
Danny Romero, see, um, they're both being from New Mexico and both being from not that far from each other. Johnny Tapia was several years older than Danny Romero. I want to say seven or eight or so, something like that. And in any case, they weren't close enough in age to where they knew each other, you know, in the amateur circuit or anything like that. By the time that Danny Romero was really making his way on the amateur circuit, Johnny Tappy was already a pro. He was already, you know, well into his career. But it seemed to me like uh, what had happened was Danny who Romero, who was trained by his father, Danny Romero Sr., him and their family seemed to feel as though Johnny Tapia gave New Mexico boxing a bad name, that he was a bad guy, a bad character, a bad boy getting into legal trouble, etc. And those kinds of things were not very becoming of a fighter or whatever. And so also Danny Romero got a lot of opportunities that perhaps Johnny Tapia either didn't get, or if he got them, did not properly take advantage of them and fuck them up. And so I think that there was resentment on both sides here. I mean, just speaking honestly, and some of it might have been fairly legit. Some of it was kind of stupid and fucking petty. But what wound up happening was they jawed at each other so bad before the fight, you know, talking about the disrespect and blah, 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 so-and-so's trash, no, this person's trash, that they actually literally had an entirely separate press tour for each fighter where they did not have press conferences together and instead was like they'd have a Danny Romero press conference and a Johnny Tapia press conference. They shared a luncheon one time, it looked like, which did like not go well. So they, they discontinued that shit. And one of the guys who was actually talking about it, I was reading a, a moment ago, was Bruce Trampler uh, from, from Top Rank, who worked with Top Rank for a number of years. I, I don't think he does anymore. Does he still? I don't even know. Pretty sure he's still on the, the matchmaker. Yeah, I think he's still with them. I don't pay attention to any of that shit, to be honest. <laughs> but regardless. Uh, he's like yeah. Teddy Brenner. He's been around forever. Yeah, he's he's been doing it a long, long time. And this is how far back it goes, <laughs> the early 90s. Anyway, so that's kind of how how bad this grudge match was, you know? And it wound up actually leading to a pretty good fight. Oh, absolutely. Um, another aspect, too, is that, like, even like you mentioned, um, Tapia had a lot of uh, start and stops in the early 90s. You know, he also became a WBO champion in the early 90s when it didn't really mean much. But I mean, he was undefeated. He was clearly really talented and making a lot of noise. But every time he started building some momentum, something would happen with him being arrested or whatever it was. And he had to take some time off. Um, Danny Romero during that time started making a lot of inroads and like becoming popular because he was signed with top rank back then. And I remember when I first got into the sport, I saw him featured on a couple of pay-per-view undercards where he scored spectacular knockouts. And then, excuse me, um, he was finally featured in a primetime spot on the undercard of George Foreman, Axel Schultz, where he fought for the uh, flyweight championships, IBF flyweight title against um, Francisco Tejodor and that's another and, guy who was around for fucking ever ever yeah absolutely but you're totally right columbia guy, really tough guy too very crafty fighter and so the story behind that fight which i read about in the ring magazine after it happened um was that this was not only was it being featured on hbo i think it was the first flyweight fight ever featured on hbo like that but this was the first time an american was um champion in the flyweight division in like 60 years or something close to it you know what i mean like they just americans in the flyweight division were just completely cursed because 
You didn't really find many guys 112 pounds like that. Anyways, Romero won the fight and like, you know, again, being featured by top rank, kind of like how they featured Michael Carbajal at the same time. Like he was going to get a lot of, you know, time. He was personable, good looking guy. He was knocking dudes out left and right, big power, everything like he had the momentum behind him. Tapia was obviously like kind of like bitter and like mad about it, right? Because Tapia felt he was the better fighter. He's the one that should be featured. Exactly. So that was like, there's a lot of resentment going on with both of them. And Tapia thinks, oh, you know, he's a spoiled golden boy, easy silver spoon, asshole, whatever it is. I'm the one who has to come up tough. So an interesting thing that comes up, though, is that in 1995, this was the first time I saw Tapia fight. Um, Tapia fought a, a journeyman named Willie Salazar. Willie Salazar got the fight with Tapia because he scored a major upset over Danny Romero, where um, in a non-title fight where he broke Romero, Romero's eye socket kind of freakishly and, you know, ended up scoring a TKO over it. So, you know, the Golden Goose was kind of like, you know, broken at that point. Tapia fought him on a, on a pay-per-view undercard and beat the bejesus out of him because I watched that on, on pay-per-view. So from there you know but the still the thing is the fight still wasn't really being made like it was you know both guys kind of jarring back at back at each other but nothing was really coming of it it wasn't until Romero finally moved up to junior bantamweight and knocked the hell out of a respected champion named Harold Gray and at that point Romero now was with Cedric Kushner and um it was you know the fight was like it was built up to this point where it looked like, you know, um, things were that, that, like you just said, HBO had it built up. It was built to a true super fight now. Yeah, dude, it, there was absolutely no question that, you know, it was the, the, the time was right for it and everything. It was what, uh, 1993, I want to say, in which Michael Carbajal and, uh, you know, Humberto Chiquita Gonzalez mm -hmm. got the first million dollar uh, purse for fighters of that size. And so I think that there was kind of like some, some uh, molds being broken, I guess you could say. And on top of that, leading into this fight for the first time in a long time, I honestly don't know how, how long I'd have to look, but for the first time in a long time, uh, two flyweight sized fighters were featured on the cover of Ring Magazine. And that was it. That had been a long ass time since that had happened. And people were even like interviewing uh, Nigel Collins to to ask about you know all about like you know the hubbub about the little fighters and stuff like that absolutely but, it, but yeah it, the point was it was it was a fairly big deal especially considering all of the factors going into oh it. I, I mean when when hbo when like i like so like i said romero moved up he scored a spectacular knockout then they were featured in a co um on a box and after dark and co-fights um yeah, yeah, yeah. knocked out um marco antonio barrera's brother and Barrera and um, excuse me, uh, Danny Romero knocked out you know his mandatory challenger. But the stage was set. You know, it went, like it was a big, big fight. Like you knew everything was going on, but they couldn't even hold it in New Mexico. That's how big it was. Like the, the tensions were so crazy that they knew it was dangerous to hold it there. Yeah, they were. They were actually. Uh, they said that they wound up. They were afraid because at the venue they were getting reports that people were armed in the crowd and that there were a mm -hmm. whole bunch of people had guns. And so they were going to like shut this down and shut that down. And they didn't wind up doing it. And thank, you know, thankfully no fucking, you know, no Daniel Kinahan shit going on and nothing happened, but no, no way in craziness. 
but yeah, regardless, yeah. you know, uh, it, it was still pretty intense though. You can definitely feel the tension and you can, oh, it, was, was, yeah. it was very much like, um, almost like the rubber match between Barrera and Morales where like mm-hmm. beforehand, they're just like, like, you can't even let them like get face to face, dude. Cause some shit's about to happen. It's it just, like, it's just at that point now. Yeah, yeah. The exact same type of shit. And then throughout the fight, uh, Johnny Tapia's like, you know, uh, like you know sticking his tongue out like making faces that was at him. such controlled perfect emotion that he like in that fight that was a beautiful performance because like every for a guy that everyone was like thinking because of how excited he could be the way how emotional he was how he fought and everything like that everyone thought that like he was going to leave it at the door try to slug and maybe get knocked out instead he channeled all of that and just put on an absolute clinic yep a clinic yeah dude and uh and actually it's funny too because watching that fight it's been a little bit but watching that fight you can actually see that like i said they're pissed they're super pissed fighting Mm -hmm. and they're fighting pissed at a few points too but even so you could see kind of like romero getting frustrated and then tapia doing well and almost (laughs) it's almost like because he's doing well he's like oh we should make up you know i'm kicking your ass let's make up and romero's like fuck you dude fuck that (laughs) And, but Tapia is like doing well. So he's like, cool, let's make up. And you could see by the end of the fight, Tapia tries to go over and give him a hug. And Danny Romero senior is like talking or saying something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him. Mm-hmm. And it was crazy too, because even after all of that, Danny Romero was like, no, nah, that didn't even happen. That, that did, none of that happened. And he stayed bitter as shit about it for a long time. Probably still bitter about it, dude. Well, you know what? I guess they did make up because there was like there was articles showing them that they like were friends afterwards in Ring Mag like a few years later, and they uh, fought on the same card again. I think a couple of times did other stuff, but like that, it looked like they seemed like they were very because New Mexico boxing is too small for that shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's you know Tapio is just a, like one of those guys, man. That like I hope he's in. Uh, yeah, he's definitely not in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I hope he makes it in. Surprised he's not, is he? No, he's not in, right? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't even know if he's on yeah, the now I'm about to, I'm, you know, I'm about to look right now because it's I saw the top like, of my head. I don't know why I just like I can't remember enough, but I'm about to look, but I'm gonna say no. I'm gonna say I don't think so. I agree with you. I don't think he is. I'm about to look it up though. Um he's on their website, but that doesn't necessarily mm. Oh no, he was inducted in in, in 2017. Damn, why didn't God? I smoked too much pot. Anyway, wowzers. So yeah, he he belongs even just in the sense that uh, in terms of accomplishments, uh, they might be thinner than you than you might realize because he's so so easy to root for. He didn't have a ton of accomplishments as a fighter, and and very hot and cold, far too many ups and downs in his career but in terms of influence and into, i mean not like a bad career not one of those guys where I'm like oh no he doesn't belong he's yeah. he's probably fairly borderline and a lot of the outside the ring shit a lot of the easy ease with which you know you could root for him probably factored mm-hmm. into that too so i don't have any issue with that but i one thing i love that like one memory i have of him that i'll always just like was really cool was um and i wish i could find this photo but at the hall of fame I can't even tell you what year it was, but it was the year Daniel Zaragoza got inducted. But okay. I, again, I don't remember what year that was. And um, so on the podium, they always oh. have all the fighters. They have, they'll always have all the fighters like um, 
you know, sitting up and stuff like that beforehand. And Tapia was sitting next to Zaragoza and my father, my dad was up there taking photos, just, you know, snapping along. And without even asking or doing anything, he just kind of did this on his own. Tapia went up to, was sitting next to Zaragoza, put his arm around him and then put his head down him, like cradled, cradled it like he was like a little kid with his dad. And he just kind of lay there for a minute and Zaragoza started smiling. And like Tapia almost did that for my dad entirely. So my dad was in front of him when he did that. And he just did that. And all of a sudden, Zaragoza smiling. My dad started snapping. And the other photographers noticed what was happening. They ran over and started snapping it too. But it was just like a cool moment that he didn't really do it more so to like get a photo, but he was just like totally like, hey, this is my buddy. I love him. I'm just like, you know, admiring just put his hand out. Like he was just really happy to be there. You know, uh, uh, you know, for he today who sheds his blood with me, she'll be my brother, you know? Yeah. It's, the, yeah. it's that same type of concept where they're brothers in arms. So I get it. And that's a, that's a cool poignant moment. The, yeah. It was, it was really cool to see. Like he just, it was almost just like, you know, he just laid right there on him and he saw this and he had this look like this innocent, like happy look when he was doing it. It was cool. You know, like I said, easy guy to root for extremely human. Um, I guess there was really no other way he could have gone out. You know what I mean? Like that guy, that guy was not going to go riding yeah. off into the sunset. But you know what, man, at least when, when he passed and they found out there was nothing in his system too. But yeah. So just such an easy guy to root for. And uh, yeah, I, it sucks the way that he went out. And like you, you know, like you said, it's, I'm happy that there were no drugs in his system because literally everybody thought that and, you know, kind of rightly so because of how many issues he had. I mean, but, totally. Yeah. That makes sense. But you know what? He, there was no other way he was going to go out. But I mean, that's one of those type of lives. He's there for one moment, makes an impact with everyone, and then he's out. Yeah, it's it was unfortunate. But, you know, that's definitely that Tapia Romero cross-state, you know, cross-city rivalry is a grudge match for sure. What's another one? And it was also cool to mention, just oh, yeah. a little, really, really quick to say that, like, that whole card was awesome because it also featured the smallest fighter that was ever a world champion, baby Jake Malala. <laughs> Just butchering Michael Carbajal on the undercard, bro. <laughs> he was an extremely tiny guy. And it was just so, like, with the biggest smile on his face and his little arms, he's four foot ten, and, like, Carbajal towers over him, and he just... Just cuffed him around, bro. And it was, you know, when Merchant afterwards, because he was, you know, he said that Nelson Mandela was his idol and all, he was like, oh, you're going to have lunch with Nelson Mandela now, and the biggest smile gets on his face, and he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude, and actually, it's funny too because Nelson Mandela was a huge baby Jake Matlala fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They loved each other. Yeah, they That's became awesome. best. <laughs> but um, yeah, dude, baby Jake, man, South African fight legend for sure. And it sucks too because if Chiquita Gonzalez didn't abruptly retire, um, that was supposed to be one of the fights on the early boxing after dark. It actually was featured. It was it was publicized in one of my old boxing digest magazines, advertised. Fun. That is said, I forgot whatever the main event was, but the undercard was going to be Chiquita Gonzalez, Baby Jake. That sucks because Baby Jake would have gotten a nice payday for that. And that would have been fun. Yeah, that would have been an awesome fight. But another one that I wanted to bring up because um, it features two obnoxious, loud, loud ass guys from the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be Vinny Paz and Greg Haugen. <laughs> I, knew, I knew, dude, I'm telling you, I don't know what it is about New England, bro. But I was looking at, like, I was trying to figure out, all right, like, which grudge matches we got? Because I need to see, like, what what the spread is so I can pick yeah. here. 
you know, and like, you know, try to find some shit that's obscure or something like that. And I kept finding like New England grudge match after New England grudge match, dude. It's like motherfuckers from Boston hated motherfuckers from Providence. That's true. No, they really do, man. Like everyone, I don't like when people tell me I'm from New Bedford, Mass. All right. And I can't stand it when everyone just associates me with Boston. Like, oh, yeah, you're from Boston. I'm not from Boston, okay? I've never been from Boston. I don't like Boston. I don't like people from Boston in general. Like, it's just one of those things. I mean, not to say I, don't, I hate everybody from Boston. Don't get me wrong. There's a few nice people there. But just in general. Yeah, dude, not, your Boston card just yeah. got pulled. Yeah, I'm just, I, I, no. You know, don't, don't also, that's, that's, that's a whole other part of Massachusetts where I'm not even close to. You know what I mean? It's true. I don't know what yeah I don't know what it is I don't know if it's just the that every place is so distinct that there's got to be grudges but yeah dude this was but that's another one Pazienza and Haugen dude that that New England (laughs) and I yeah isn't aren't they still aren't they still bitchy at each other oh yeah they hate each other absolutely if you you go to Haugen and bring up Paz if you put them in a room together yeah they'll take like any opportunity they can like you bring it up and it'll be like ah yeah fuck that guy fucking hate that Mm -hmm. like they'll start going off like totally my god dude (laughs) didn't y'all take care of this apparently not well no too because i mean the fights were pretty controversial especially the first you know like the first one, which took place in Providence. Um, just, he's just such a goofball. It's tough for me to take him serious. Which one, Haugen or Paz? Yeah, well, I, both of them, but more, more <laughs> Vinny Paz than Haugen. Yeah, but, I mean, you got to think of the way they came up. Haugen obviously always had a major chip on his shoulder. He came up in the, in the tough man ranks in Alaska, which God knows how tough that is because, you know, him weighing barely above 130 135 pounds back then there's no weight divisions finding guys that weighed more than 100 pounds that he did um kind of like in a throwback to the early 1900s i guess right but like halgan by all accounts came out undefeated in these in these fights like he whooped everyone's ass and he was an accomplished amateur as well so halgan had a chip on his shoulder from that i mean i think anybody would from just knocking out like big lat like you know um uh big alaskan lumberjacks i mean if i can lay lay one of those guys out and i'm 135 pounds and i lay out a dude that's 240 i'm gonna talk a lot of shit myself wouldn't you i mean i think that there's just a different kind of fucking swagger that comes from and obviously i can't speak to this from fucking personal experience i'm yeah. a little busy be- dude but like you know there's a different kind of fucking swagger that comes from somebody who's like been in a lot of street fights or a lot of fights that aren't like a like a sport you know what i'm saying like you're fighting Absolutely. in some like some room or something you know there's there's a different kind of swagger i think that comes from like when you're like successful on the street and haugen had that shit throughout his entire career he was like just kind of a cocky dude you know and you know it didn't stop with pazienza he talked shit to chavez to his detriment in front of a hundred thousand over a hundred thousand people that would call it for his head <laughs> yeah dude don't ever make the mistake of walking up into julio cesar chavez fucking sparring session and saying all you do is spar with tijuana cab drivers because he will take it out on your ass in front of yes. 125 people yeah people in a, in a crazy stadium where I, you know it broke records but it's like, I don't it's even like know four that. or five rounds and after four rounds it was just like a beat down man that was a beat down it looked like Haugen had been through like 45 rounds not five rounds yeah. look he looked awful yeah, it was bad but, but yeah anyway pazienza sorry 
So no, it, it was one of the things, like Haugen came up from, from the tough ranks. So beating guys that are hundred pounds bigger than you or more or whatever it is, you think he's going to be worried when he turns for and fights a bunch of lightweights. So no, you know, absolutely not. He came up tough. He fought really tough guys on the, on the way up. He fought guys like Chris Calvin, who was a very, very tough, rough, lightweight, um, Charlie Brown, Edwin Curette, until he eventually fought Jimmy Paul for the belt, uh, for the IBF title. And a big upset at the time, you know, which was featured on Showtime. He, he outboxed Paul and out, outroughed him and scored a win. So his first defense, though, was against Benny Paz in Providence, Rhode Island at the Civic Center. And to go fight Paz in the 80s, I mean, this would count as any time, but especially in the 80s, at the height of Pazamania, um in the 80s is like walking into like i don't what, what would be an act this what would be like a, a good uh, it would be like walking into buffalo when joe macy would as was at his yeah <laughs> or like third some, franchise you know, mm-hmm, absolutely like when you got to go to someone's hometown that's absolutely like or going to tony lopez to fight him in sacramento you know what i mean like any one of those type of places like yeah, that's, a, that's a good the, one. Yeah, going to Arco yeah. Arena and trying to trying and to trying to beat Tony Lopez. You know what I mean? Like, where you're already five rounds down, just walking in. So, or trying to fight Jerry Cooney in upstate New York, like, or in Long Island, any of those type of deals. Like, you, you're going to fight that deal, and then so it was kind of a no-win situation. And then Pazzi ends up being a loud, obnoxious guy the way he was back then, coming from his area, and Haugen being loud. They just, their personalities were in a clash. They already hated each other. But it resonated in the ring, and they put up a hell of a fight. Like, that was a really, really, really good fight. And as close as it was, as good as it was, you might have thought that Haugen edged it, but it was close. But no, Pazzi ended up winning a decision. Yeah, I thought I thought that that was a fight Haugen probably could have taken, but it was pretty close, dude. Like, yeah, it, was it wasn't close. like an out and out thing that Haugen was robbed in, as much as he likes to say he was. But no, Pazian's in a close fight. He was going to edge it, and that's what he did. He won by a few points in all the cards. Yeah, Paz probably took it on the strength of his mustache at the time. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> shit was pretty '80s, bro. She was legitimately '80s. But no, it was. I it mean, was... less than a year later, they had the rematch. So. Yep. It was a pretty good fight. It was a entertaining fight, uh, hard fought. They weren't, you know, going light or anything like that. But like, yeah, dude, it seemed as though um, I don't know. I mean, I was person. I'm not gonna lie. Hopefully, he doesn't wind up listening to this. But I was never really a Vinny Paz fan, like in general. Like, it's he's just never really, you know, I don't know. Seemed like not really the, my favorite, my kind of fighter, I guess. But even so, uh, that coming off the strength of that win. All that did was just feed Pazienza's ego or feed his in-ring ego, whatever, make him even more of a, you know, a maniac than he already was. And so going into uh, the rematch in Atlantic City, is it's a considerably bigger uh, platform or bigger venue, at least in terms of recognition from boxing fans. Obviously, and it's also much more like neutral territory. Exactly. It, it probably was more emotional fighting in Providence. But in Atlantic City, it's like more neutral ground. And on top of that, it just provides a bigger platform for mm. both of them. And on a bigger platform, yeah, dude, again, they fight a rematch. And again, I thought the fight was fairly close. I mean, at least these, they're not the kinds of fighters where when they get in, dude, it's like kind of like Morales and Barrera. Like they cannot let the other dude like 
like you know one yeah. dude hits the hits the other guy and the guy's like, oh, that. I gotta yeah, get back. there's no way they can let each other just you know yeah it, it's ridiculous yeah yeah exactly so i mean you know you wind up getting uh greg haugen coming out with the decision this time which Vinny Pazienza will never shut up, shut up about. So it's like one guy and then the other guy, it's like back and forth. Nor will he ever shut up about the Hall of Fame either, will he? Well, that's one thing I got to give an advantage to Greg Haugen about. Because I'm hearing about from Greg Haugen's PR people about getting him into the Hall of Fame. But, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, man, that's one of the, like, a lot of, a lot of grudges, even the Barrera Morales one, I mean, I don't know. I guess they've had a recent spat, but um, for for the most part, usually like as as the years go by, they kind of mellow, right? You know, most of these guys. These two haven't, like you said in the beginning of this, they still haven't. If you bring up in an article, like Vinny Paz has said on Twitter many times, if someone brings up Greg Haugen, you know, forget him, screw him, I hate him, yada 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 yada, right? And Greg Haugen, as far as I know, is not on Twitter, but whenever he kind of emerges in in, in an interview or wherever it may be. He certainly doesn't have anything nice to say about Vinny Paz either. So poor Greg Haugen, though, too, because it's like his biggest career moments are the rivalry with somebody more famous and getting his ass kicked by Chavez. So I'm sure that's what anybody yeah. ever all, always asks him about. Like, yeah, his biggest like, his biggest fights were his losses. I mean, against the most high profile guys. Against he lost two of three to Vinny Paz. Old, that's his biggest yeah. rival. Um Perno Whitaker in his first, you know, he's known as uh Whitaker's first title win just and washed his ass yeah just yeah I mean he was he tried against that fight it wasn't yeah, I mean, no shame you know, but he watched no shame his ass. at all he just got absolutely whooped from first round to the last round and yeah the losing to Chavez in front of 120 some thousand people yeah dude you know I uh, yeah with Vinny Pazienza's style an aggressive guy who doesn't have a ton of power but like you know he could sting you mm-hmm. and then, Greg Haugens, who's definitely uh, who's definitely a far more uh, like a more orthodox kind of like a little bit more textbook type of fighter, uh, you know, in terms of like the style matchup and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's a natural style matchup, too. And then after that Pernell Whitaker fight with Greg Haugen, you know, he wound up having to come back, which he did. But the guys that he came back against were kind of like, you know, at best middling level 140 pounders and Guillermo Cruz and Robert Nunez. I don't even know Robert Nunez. He does have one thing over over on Vinny Paz is that he did put an L on Hector Camacho. That is extremely true. Yeah. yeah. And that ain't worth nothing. That's, That's absolutely not. That was the first loss Camacho suffered too. Yeah, that ain't like, that was a fight Halgan was not supposed to win, but he put on a hell of a performance in that one. And and granted, Camacho was going through a lot and during his career at that point, he had a lot of outside. He, like, finished the job on. Rosario started. Yeah, yeah, he had a lot of outside things going on, and it was kind of crazy that he like finished the '80s undefeated at that point in, in the first place. But still, the be the man, the first the the first put L on Camacho was huge. And Halgan was able to do it. Dude was doing so much coke around that time, dude. Be like. <laughs> Hector and he'd be like, huh? What? Yeah. yeah. No <laughs> shit. Holy shit. Yeah, the fact that he got through the 80s is is even, you know, is even crazier, crazy. even crazier. But yeah, so he does have that over Vinny Paz because Vinny Paz got slapped up by Camacho when they fought. <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, you know what? I'm actually gonna about to look this up because was there a rubber match on the under no, it was not on the undercard or something. It was the main event. Okay. I didn't know. He did have a rubber match, yeah. Yeah, they did have a they did have a rubber match, and Haugen won a ten round decision. 
and I'm not going to lie, I don't specifically remember that, but it looked like it was uh, uh, promoted by Top Rank and every, or not Top Rank, main events. So, I mean, I don't know. It was big enough for them to to have a third fight, but yeah, they're still bitter at each other after all of these years, dude. Mm-hmm. Kind of like grudge matches. Kind of like uh, battling Nelson and Wall, I guess, huh? <laughs> That's a good one. I didn't even think of that. I just thought of that right now. I just really just thought of that right now. I should have thought of that. That's a really good one. Damn. Reason why is because like at their old age, when they like both of them were going senile, I think the other they still hate each other or like training for you know what I mean. But yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. What's his name? Um uh ad wolgas i mean i don't know how true this is but this is one of the things they used to write about at the time and you know you probably would bring it up if i didn't is the fact that the orderlies in the mental hospital in which he wound up said that he still trained for a fight you know even when he was old thinking that he was getting a fight or that he was going to make a comeback not even old he wasn't even that old like he was just messing nah, up. no his brain was just complete mush but that's a really good one actually that's a really good one um damn I wish I were more prepared to talk about that, but I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. The only thing I will say about that is that their wives were, were friends. Yes. Their wives were friends and were pissed that their husbands wouldn't be friends or wouldn't make up. I, I well, but they really, they really couldn't stand each other. They talked a bunch of shit before the fights. Um, I think Nelson hated it more than Walgas did, but yeah. it, it turned out for their fight because they hated each other so much. That's when they were both more or less kind of like, hey, let's just have this fight to the finish. Um, fouls allowed, whatever, just kind of, you know. Was it the last title fight to the finish? More or less. I mean, the fact that they put it for 45 rounds, kind of like, kind of, well, I mean, what was it? What was it? What was it scheduled for? I think it was scheduled for 45, but that it so, initially was going to be for to the finish. Like that's what. So 45 rounds though was more or less a fight to the finish. Who the hell is going to fight 45? Maybe rounds? maybe that's what it is. Maybe it was the final 45 rounder. There's something. Yeah, because it's it one of those remember. fights that like 45 rounds that essentially is a fight to the finish, especially with the gloves that they're wearing and how that brutal it was. Yeah, dude. Because yeah, that was and, brutal, brutal. I mean, even today. Um, well, you see the the photos from it, the grainy ass photos or, from or, it, or even like, oh. or even the video. You know, uh, con- considering how grainy video was and how primitive it was back then, that's one of the few fights that stands that stands out. You can still tell how brutal it is. You can hear it. You can like some of the punches you hear. Like you know, one of the rounds you see a wall gas rip um, Nelson with an uppercut, and you hear that thunk like that, and you just see his head snap back, and like you can totally tell this wasn't like really mauling that they did in that era where, you know, kind of like going, no, these guys were beating the hell out of each other badly. Yeah. There are definitely fighters where you watch them and you're like, Oh, this guy wouldn't last around. And then there are other fighters where you're like, damn, this dude. Just yeah. And that was fine. one of those fights that like, if there was like an enhanced version of it and color and everything, you could really watch it. You would probably like label it TV 18. Wink, wink, yeah. smooth legends. <laughs> wink exactly wink, our <laughs> homie smooth legends Please. get it up bro yeah put it through the ai no that's a good one though that is a really good one a more modern i guess a more modern one that you could bring up uh would be and this is actually one that i don't know if these guys ever got over it roy jones and tony otaka that's that's actually you know I guess uh, Bernard Hopkins doesn't really figure into the grudge with Tarver, so it wouldn't really be a. Well, Hopkins, grudge. Jones, oh yeah, they've yeah, but, they've but, had a but grudge. 
yeah, Roy Jones definitely rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, dude. <laughs> you know, James Tony take wanted to take his ass to Burger King. Fucking Bernard Hopkins was 60-40, kick your ass. Fucking, yep. you know, did and then Tarver. <laughs> people just hated Pensacola ass Roy Jones, dude. I mean, understandably so. You know, we talk about arrogance, you talk about Supreme and just the way you are and kind of everything like yeah, man, a lot of those guys were definitely pissed off at Roy and, like, wanted a chance at him. Sometimes they felt like, well, if you watched his fights back then, too, in the 90s and the early 2000s, and the way he's just fighting all these overmatched opponents on HBO that he's just, you know, has no chance of losing. And he's got the little tail, the, like, yeah. little short Oh, yeah, tail. yeah, 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 yeah. And he's walking in with a suit on and all this other stuff, and he's just having fun and joking and putting his hands behind his back while he's knocking out these dudes and all this other shit, like... You have guys like Tarver, you have dudes who like, like you mentioned, Tony, who's been rejuvenated and other contenders who are sitting there just like, I, I want to fight him. This is bullshit. Why can't I get a shot at Roy Jones? Whether they're going to win or win or lose, they just, yeah, exactly. they felt like they were being shafted. Well, and right or wrong, whether, and this is one of the big issues I have when people talk about fighters who are supremely gifted, where they say things like, well, he'd beat him anyway if he fought him. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to fucking hear that. Then just fight him. They just fucking fight him because the whole like, well, you know, he doesn't need to fight him because he'd beat him is mm -hmm. it's some dumb shit. But that's what wound up happening, unfortunately, for several years of Roy Jones career early on where, you know, he was clearly from the very start, like every single one of his fights is, is on tape, you know, and when you have a fighter where every single one of their fights is televised, it gets really difficult for that fighter to argue they're being like mistreated financially or in terms of attention or promotion, I, I should say. They could still be mistreated financially. But nonetheless, you know, Roy Jones was one of those fighters where he got a lot of attention. You know, the, the 1988 robbery in Seoul, I think, led to a lot of uh, appeal to emotion on his behalf where people were like, you know, he got fucked in the Olympics. He should be a gold medalist. And he should have been. Don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing that whatsoever. But that also led to a lot of that and his talent led to a lot of kind of special treatment uh, compared to a lot of other fighters who also were working hard but didn't get those opportunities, including Bernard Hopkins mm -hmm. and Antonio Tarver, or at least so they felt. For sure. And, you know, Roy never really had those standout fights like a super middleweight. He never, we've mentioned before, he never fought Ben, he never fought Eubank. Um, a number of punchers he never a number, of, a number of guys in that division that he would have been favored against had he had a chance to happen, but it never did. And then when he moved up to light heavyweight, um, sure he beat Mike McCallum, but McCallum was already passed in, you know, yeah. forty something at that point. Um, he beat Reggie Johnson and a few other guys. Like Jones was looking spectacular, but there was still you were just waiting for him. Like he never fought Daruj Mikachowski when when they had the chance. He didn't fight other guys that were out there, so you're just kind of like waiting, waiting, waiting and anticipating, thinking like, when is he really going to be challenged again? While you have these guys waiting in the wings, trying to like, you know, trying to get their opportunity. And then when Jones moved up to heavyweight, um, that's when it seemed like Tarver, well, when Jones was like threatening to move up to heavyweight, that's when Tarver was really starting to make his moves. Because Tarver was, was like, you got to remember, it wasn't like after the 96 Olympics, like Floyd Mayweather, like David Reed, like Fernando Vargas, he didn't just get straight shot into a title within 15, 16 fights like these guys did, and right? Sorry to interrupt you, but considering his age, he probably should have been. Yes, absolutely. Like, you know, because he was yeah. much older than most of the other. Yeah, yeah. him and Lawrence Claybay were the were the elder yep. guys of, the, of that. Yeah, um, I think Larry Claybay was the team captain. Yeah, he was. 
Clay Bay was already in his mid thirties and Tarver was already in his early thirties or something or close to it. So yeah, he, you know, he was already like, cause, cause Tarver was already like, he came from Jones's era, like from the eighties. And then like, he had some issues kind of fell out of box and then came back to it. So, but yeah, it's, he was like slow building. And even when he was first coming up, no one, they knew that he like, he had talent, he was good, but he didn't really stand out so much. Like I watched his early fights on Tuesday night fights and a few other ones. And he just really wasn't featured all that like that. Like people weren't excited about him. They were, they were the way they were about Mayweather, the way they were about Vargas, Reed, so yeah. on and so forth, you know, measured you Southpaw know. counterpuncher. Yeah. He just, you know, you know like he was winning his fights, but he just wasn't really standing out with it. And then finally, when he first, when he finally stood up and got like, and then with a fellow contender, he lost pretty um, emphatically against Harding. Harding. Yeah. Harding, I think broke his jaw, beat him up and, you know, just won a pretty comprehensive decision. So it looked like Tarver was really never going to reach his potential. But like I said, when Jones started making talks about moving to heavyweight, going through other stuff, Tarver all of a sudden like kind of turned into another, like turned into another gear. And that's when, like, you know, slow building, but he really stepped it up from there. And the rematch with Eric Harding, he blasted him out. Um, what was that thing? You know, with the referee at the end I'm of it. You know, yeah, 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 man. You yeah. okay? I'm from Philadelphia. Like, yeah. yeah. It, <laughs> it almost seemed like he was saying it because, like, his brain was scrambled and not because he was saying, I'm tough. I'm from Philadelphia. Like, almost like he was, he thought the ref was asking, Where are you? Because that's a common question yeah, to yeah, ask yeah, for yeah. fighters. But it was like, but the way he said it, just yeah, made it I'm from Philadelphia. I'm from Philadelphia. Like I can fight. Yeah, and then Marcher was like, way. "You heard what he said? I'm from Philadelphia." <laughs> like yeah. he was all proud. <laughs> yeah, and then next thing you know, like I mean, it's that old southpaw versus southpaw matchup, dude. The overhand yeah. left is going to do it every time. Tarver was, was losing that like, fight too. Donk, donk, yep. donk, like fucking fifteen times in a row, and the dude was just fucking done. Now it was a fun fight too. So, but Tarver had like become a legit contender at that point. He had beaten Eric Harden. Um, he had beaten Montel Griffin, I think, to win a vacant title. He had beaten, scored some spectacular knockouts too against a couple of other guys. So, Tarver had momentum going his way in the lightweight division, especially when there wasn't a lot of other contenders really standing out at that point. He was the one that was like, you know what? If Jones decides to move down, he should fight him. And Tarver started making noise about that. Like, I want to fight him. I want to fight him. We got on showing pictures. up to the press conferences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was getting really, really loud with it. And then when it finally, when Jones finally decided he wasn't going to stick to heavyweight and move back down, that's when the fight got made. And as you, as we all know, you know, Tarver, like Jones eked out a very, very close decision, but all that did was fuel Tarver's rage. Yeah. I, I I actually remember a lot of that pretty vividly. I don't know why. I guess just because of the time it was. I mean, it was a cool era too. That was the early two thousands, and the, you know, you could see that that was the first time, besides getting dropped against Lou Del Bell, that Jones looked really vulnerable on fight. Yeah, like, he looked really shitty vulnerable. all yeah. night. He just he just went to the ropes and covered up. And although I will say, I personally thought Roy won that fight, but a lot like, of people do too. Yeah, man. But Absolutely. Like, you know, there were a lot of cries of robbery, like Tarver deserved it and that type of stuff. Even though, like I said, I don't agree because Tarver, despite the fact that Roy kept going to the ropes, just kind of put him on the ropes and then was like waiting. Mm -hmm. like he was afraid Roy was going to lash out, but Roy didn't have it. He, but he didn't know that Roy didn't have it. Yeah. yeah so it's yeah. like he waited too long. And then in those moments where he was waiting, Roy kept hitting him with body shots. I remember that shit and thinking, damn, like he's ripping some body shots, bro. <laughs> but like, but he won those rounds. 
So, but yeah, that's kind of how that shit started. And going into the grudge part of it, you know, Tarver felt as though Roy Jones had gotten all of these opportunities and he had had to go through the hard way or go through yes. a more difficult division, which I don't know, I guess, whatever it's it, by that point, the division had been thinned out. So I don't know that Tarver had really cleaned it out or anything. That's why I was going to say, man, that's why he emerged as the top guy because the division was rather thin. Yeah, at that point. It was, it was hobbling at that point. It was not a, a very good division, but even so he emerged as clearly the top contender. He had some sort of uh, history with Roy Jones. So he said, or so he felt. And then after that first fight, you know, he kept John that he deserved it. He was going to do this, that, and this. And I remember I kept thinking, well, you know, if Roy recovers, recovers from this, he's going to outbox him in the rematch. Mm-hmm. Like, Roy's going to whoop his ass, too. This is going to be bad. <laughs> That's not at all what happened whatsoever. That's it's starting out like that, though. You know, do you think that was a lucky punch? Because Roy, I'm going to say, man, Roy was putting it on him for the round and a half before he got clipped. I thought that Roy clearly looked sharper there than in the first fight. Like he just had more time to get yeah. acclimated to the weight, to, you know, lo- loss and gain and stuff. Yeah, he Bernie McGar was like, and Bernie McGar was a little, was a little like, you know, you can tell he had he was a little animated in the corner after the first round because Tarver got hit quite a bit. He was like, oh man, you can't be getting respect." And you hear Tarver, "Don't be using that word in that corner, of me." Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't respect him. It's yeah, like, I would have been like, "Shut the fuck up and just go out and hit him, dude." Oh like, yeah, respect I'm, what? Just go hit him. <laughs> so what? Yeah, like I'm trying to give you advice, bro. Shut up. But but then he did, man. That was one of the most surreal things I had ever seen as a boxing fan. And still today, that was incredible. You do got to give it up to Tarver in some way because even though his eyes were closed for that shot, he 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 stepped into it though. Like he he was was going, yeah, yeah, absolutely. He he knew Roy was moving backwards, so he stepped with him and threw it. I mean, I don't want to get too into the fucking technical analysis here. Yeah, that was a beautiful shot because it caught Roy clean and Roy was out, 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 out there was a gif of Roy getting knocked out. And so I'll just, I'll keep this part brief, but on the message boards back in the day, there were a handful of fighters whose fans were considered like the worst, right? Felix Trinidad was one of them, man, those passionate body quests, man, they they got it. You know what I'm saying? They love their, they love their Island. I, they love their fighters. It's all good, but they, they were show out on social media for shizzle in the early days of early, I'm more talking 2001. I think the first time I used to read Dougie's articles was right before Trinidad Hopkins, but his mailbags fools used to attack. Yo, they ass. were going in on him because yeah. he had the nerve to say that Trinidad wasn't the goat. <laughs> yep. They used to attack his ass because of course this was at the time where Trinidad was supposed to run through Hopkins and go straight to yes. Roy. So it was like, mm-hmm. ah, well, if he's, he's on this epic run, but whatever he's but gonna then, knock out sugary robinson he would have beat this guy that guy right you know? and so then a lot of the a lot of the other fans of like another fighter who was roy jones his fans were fairly insufferable when it came to like message board arguing and shit like that and so after he got knocked out there was a gif going around of him getting knocked out and some of the people on the max boxing boxing message board whenever some shit would be said about roy jones they would literally just string together a number of the gifts so that it was like a massive block of like nine gifts by nine gifts of Roy Jones just getting knocked out and they just oh, be like, fuck man. it, I'm out of here. And they just leave. It was it was so visually striking, you know, seeing Roy Jones fall like that. Like that was brutal, dude. It was a bad yeah. knockout. And then on top of that, and then 
I'll shut up so that you can get your word in edgewise. The rubber match, though, to hear Roy, to see Roy Jones walk through that shit so awfully, and then afterwards openly admit, yeah, I really just fought to not get knocked out was sad as fuck, dude. I never watched that rubber match, so I just was one of those fights that wasn't appealing to me. Yeah, that's nothing. Because I think that fight, that fight happened after he got knocked out by Glenn Johnson, right? Yes. Yeah, so I was just yeah because yeah, because he he said he wanted revenge i don't think he really wanted revenge i think that he literally wanted he what he said after the fight was i thought a lot more truthful than before which was he literally said i wanted to fight to prove to my dad i wasn't going to get knocked out and that was one of the saddest things i've ever heard in my life especially just, coming from a guy like roy jones who's basically superman like bro you didn't even fight for yourself here you just fought so that your dad wouldn't talk shit jesus it's heavy. ouch that's that's rough on a number of different levels absolutely so, yeah you didn't you didn't miss nothing but that grudge match obviously you know tarver kind of got the final laugh on that one unfortunately but you know needless to say roy jones obviously had the greater career for sure by by no question so I got a good one, a good one that I can almost guarantee you weren't going to bring up, or at least I hope, because I don't want to steal this one. That would be a bad one to steal. But one that people are probably going to listen and go, what? Never heard of that. Donald Curry versus Emmett Linton. Okay. You know what? I definitely was not going to bring that up, but that's actually <laughs> okay, just making that's sure. a good point because I did, I, I'm not that familiar with the story, but I do know that there was some, there is a backstory to it that culminated in them fighting. Yes. So. so I got the backstory, or at least most of it. I don't know all of it. I'm not going to pretend to know the details. But Donald Curry, as many boxing fans know, in the 1980s was extremely popular, uh, considered like a can't miss type of fighter. Um, from a technical standpoint, one of the best fighters I've ever seen. Oh my God. Fast, Incredible. sharp, uh, good punching power, Balanced. good head movement. Uh, he just could not take a chin or a, he did not have a good, he did not have a good chin, could not take a punch super well. Um, and that wound up at least in part being his downfall. I think he definitely had issues with training. And on top of that, it wound up, I think coming out years later that he, and it's unfortunately very sad that we've heard that he's not doing so well recently. Um, but he also had a lot of issues with motivation and training and, he said later on that he was fearful throughout much of his career and that he didn't really want to fight that like he, he did not have the mindset of a fighter. And it's funny because there are a lot of fighters like that. There are a lot, you think of a fighter and you think like, Oh, they're vicious. They're ferocious fucking, you know, the fear never, blah, blah, blah. you know, it's like some monstrous entity you're thinking. And that's not always the case. Sometimes he also had an insanely long amateur career, which a he lot did. of guys back then too. Extremely then. accomplished amateur. You don't get paid shit. You're doing it for free for forever. And he didn't even get to make it to the Olympics, which he undoubtedly would have. And you get burned out, dude. And I think that that was also part of it. He got burned out and just didn't love it. You know, he didn't, he didn't love it. He didn't want to fight. And he was just a regular guy who was like, I'm not a crazy fucking, you know, animal. I'm just a fighter. He just happened to be also be really, really good at it. After he had already kind of fallen from grace, uh, he had a lot of outside the ring troubles. He had some drug issues that were at the time denied. He didn't, you know, he tried to, he got a bunch of attorneys that were like able to uh, get him out of trouble a number of different times. 
but it sounds like he also, you know, was involved in some bad shit. After he'd fallen from grace and kind of had started picking himself up, getting his career back together uh, in the 1980s, toward the end of the 1980s, a fighter named Emmett Linton, um, Donald Curry had opened, he had, he had uh, started his own promotional company. And actually, I fucking, it's the dumbest name. And so I feel stupid now for forgetting it because it's literally the most basic. It's like Boxing Promotions Inc. or some shit like that. I think that, I think that literally might be it. Yeah, it's literally Boxing Management Inc. Wasn't Love kidding. <laughs> so he started a management company called Boxing Management Inc. He took on a whole bunch of uh, fighters. And actually, a number of these fighters are super recognizable names. It's just that they weren't at the time, and he couldn't hang on to them. So he had Skipper Kelp. He had Freddie he Norwood. Yep. Yeah, he had Freddie Norwood. He had uh, Kevin Childry, who was actually at the time a really, really good amateur a couple of years before that. He had a number of really good local uh, – Carl Daniels. He had Carl Daniels, too. He had a number of local fighters or fighters from around the U.S. that he had brought to Texas so that they could live and train. There. Like, he was, like, you know, doing it big. He was taking care of these fighters. But Emmett Linton uh, was an extremely talented fighter who at the time was undefeated. He was, like, 20 years old or something like that in 1990-91-ish. Uh, and so um, he and Donald Curry had gotten fairly close. I think Donald Curry had recognized that Emmett was one of the more talented fighters in his stable, except for Emmett Linton, like reading on him, he sounded like a dude who he didn't really want to be there either. Or he had out, he had other interests. He had other places he wanted to be or other shit he wanted to be doing. And then he wound up um, rebelling against Curry in the gym. Curry would constantly be, you know, telling him what to do. And he would say, I don't like him telling me what to do. It's like, well, you know, he's like an extremely good amateur and a really good pro trying to help you out, bro. And so I don't, I'm not taking sides here, but it kind of sounded like Linton was fairly ungrateful. And even like there was this news story that I was reading a little bit ago before we started, just kind of, you know, making sure I have extra details about this shit. Uh, this reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram goes into their gym and he's uh, Donald Curry sitting on the on the apron trying to give instructions to Emmett Linton, who's sparring with somebody. And he's telling Emmett Linton, keep your hands up, you know, get your hands moving, something, something, shouting some shit. And so then after the sparring session, Emmett Linton goes over to the reporter and starts talking to the reporter and basically talking shit, saying like, yeah, I don't like him telling me what to do and stuff like that. And then Donald Curry goes back to the reporter and saying, yeah, I don't think he wants this fight. It's like a very bizarre, you know, especially like yeah, yeah. you'd think that if you're a manager, generally speaking, you don't talk shit about your fighter, right? Like you're talking your fighter up. If you're a promoter, Absolutely. you don't talk shit about your fighter. You're talking your fighter up, you know? So it, it was kind of a strange situation, but here's what wound up bringing it to a head. So Donald Curry, like I said, wound up getting into a number, a number of legal situations. And on top of that, he fathered a child out of wedlock. That wound up, I think, getting him divorced from his, the, the woman he was married to. So he had children that he had to pay child support to. He was doing something with the money that was like keeping money away from them or something like that. And so Emmett Linton, according to him, gave his ex-wife information that she was able to use to get child support, child support payments out of his ass. And then because he had done something funky 
he wound up getting sent to jail because of the child support issue and at the same time getting indicted for drug char- charges that were that were later dropped but it was like drug trafficking charges you know pretty fucking serious shit so he literally said that the day that he got booked into jail he was like i'm fighting emmett linton and that shit was years later so he literally got put into jail in the early 90s like 92 or 93 or something and so they wound up fighting in 1997 i believe and it yeah it was 1997 in april of 1997 and there's even more backstory to this. So obviously they're pissed at each other and shit like that. Emmett Linton doesn't like him because he's been telling him what to do years ago. He's his manager, blah, blah, blah. And then he'd moved on. But uh, Donald Curry in the midst of what's basically his comeback. And he says that his comeback literally started and he knocked out a dude named Gary Jones. It was three and 24 uh, in Winnipeg. So whatever, but his comeback, he said he started because he wanted to beat Emmett Linton that he needed to kick his ass for what he did. So that's literally what his comeback in 1997, after being off for six years, starts from. He's coming off of in his last fight in 91, a knockout loss to Terry Norris, who at the time was, you know, uh, fairly up and coming, I suppose, had lost a few times, but was still kind of in the midst of his prime. <laughs> There's so much to this already. To, to pile on even more, Donald Curry gets pancreatitis inflammation of the pancreas which causes extreme abdominal pain vomiting diarrhea all sorts of other shit can cause like you know weak difficulty breathing and leading into the fight he gets pancreatitis looks like absolute dog shit in the fight and gets the the crap kicked out of him yeah he was washed tko'd in seven rounds and just looked like absolute hell and then after the fight it turns out he has pancreatitis after they do a bunch of blood tests and he's like yeah i'm coming back to fight again because that's why i didn't look good because i had pancreatitis and he held a grudge against Emmett Linton for years. He never fought again, though, did he? Nope. Yeah. Thankfully, he was talked out of it. Damn. So yeah, there's. I didn't even. I didn't. Know I didn't even know this. that whole backstory. I knew there was a story to it. Came out of retirement to fight him, but like. Me neither. You know. I, but I I looked up grudge matches and saw that and was like, I didn't know about that. Okay. It's pretty crazy. Well, I'll bring up another one. Like, since I rather, you know, I guess it's better that we keep it obscure more so than talk about ones that everybody knows about all yeah. the time. So here's a good one too. Do you remember when JC Candelo fought Verno Phillips? Yes, their train. <laughs> one of his trainers used to post on Max Boxing right around this time, and that fool used to yeah. go off about shit. Go for it. And like we're talking about, like with that fight, at they like there was some kind of backstory and beef that like Candelo owed. Um, owed vernal phillips a bunch of money he never paid him off and he was like you know avoiding his debt so vernal phillips stole his dog his dog stole his dog his gloves his robe and a bunch of other items and he said he was going to put them all on ebay <laughs> and that was the whole thing and yes i'm looking at a boxing talk interview right now with phillips to talk where vernal phillips talked about how he stole all of his stuff and he was going to put it up there dude verno phillips was <laughs> That dude was such a character, man. And his his trainer, and I may might have been like assistant trainer, whoever the fuck it was, was up on Max Boxing on the forums and would frequently go on there and like talk shit and like, you know, all sorts of stuff. It was funny. It was good stuff. JC Candelo, the dude, the junior middleweight division, that kind of like middle portion of the junior middleweight division in these years was fucking fun as shit, dude. You had Verno Phillips, who I think twice fought Cassine Muma, right? Yeah, I'm sure they yeah. it was twice. Was it twice? Yeah. 
Okay, yeah, I thought it was twice. Yeah, but uh, I think I want to say the first one was on ESPN. Second one was on HBO. I want to say Showtime. something like okay. that. Yeah, so one of those. Yeah. So but, all right. So like I like I said, smoke weight. But yeah, you had Uma, you had JC Candelo, you had Verno Phillips. Um, there was there was a, quite a bunch of guys coming back. Remember then. Julio Garcia? Yeah, he was he was kind of on the fringes. He wasn't quite at their level. Cuban lover. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking love that guy. But yeah, dude, there was a. Mike Cortez had come back. Carlos Bojorquez was around. Like there was, yeah, yeah, dude. There was a. It was it was a a good little kind of proving ground, perfect for that kind of Friday night fights level. Um, I don't know too much about their backstory, but I'm not even remotely surprised because Verno Phillips was always seemed to be getting into some shit or or like you know, talking up some shit Mm -hmm. or something like that. J.C. Candelo seemed like a, a pretty funny dude in his own right. So, I mean, you have to, like, listen to some of this right here. So, this is him from my old boxing talk um, interview. And wow. he was like, and so, he, uh, Vernal Phillips, he was like, yeah, I still want to fight him because I got something for him. I, have, I got his dog. Bulldog that retails anywhere between $2,000 and $3,000. I got his robe. I got his boxing gloves. I'm going to put all that shit on eBay and cutting and laughing. You don't really have his dog, do you? Yeah, I got his dog. And he was like, so you really have his dog? Yeah, I got his dog. On the real, like, I have his dog. But I gave it away to my man because I didn't want to clean up the mess and all of that. Tell him that his ex-wife told him that the dog ran away. The dog ain't run away. I got it. I could have done worse, but I just took the dog instead. And then <laughs> cutting in, he doesn't owe me $200. Dog, he owes me $300 plus. But I got his dog, and when the time comes, I'm going to get in the ring and beat the shit out of him. After his fight on January 20th, tell him to put it in the contract. All I know is that if you took my dog, we wouldn't make it to the fight. I'm saying, right? <laughs> I'm just saying, like maybe I'm a I'm, I'm a little baby who loves animals or something. But I'm just saying, if you stole my dog, we ain't gonna be getting into no boxing ring. Mm-hmm. But whatever, you know. I mean, hey, you gotta get paid. But that's wild. <laughs> dog napping. Yeah, like I'm, it, it, it's wild. Then they ended up fighting, and Teddy and Ted, um, and Verno ended up putting a beating on him that was like, you know, kind of just, you know, solidified him as like a longtime contender that he was. Yeah. Like, Verno short... was a very fun fighter, man, and a guy that was like along for a, 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 around for a long time, made for really good fights. Um, Never really established established himself as the top of the division, but always gave himself gave everybody a tough time. Yeah. Um, when Ike Cortez come back, so when Ike Cortez came back, I think his first fight was on HBO. Well, no, one of his first like he had a he had an easy comeback fight in I think in Ghana or something like that. But one of his first comeback fights, like the second fight, was against Vernal Phillips on HBO. I think on the undercard of um, Tarver Glenn Johnson too. And, you know, like that fight was basically Verno Phillips summed up in a nutshell. Like Corte got out to a really quick lead. He was jabbing him, looking really good, everything like that. But then he started fading a little bit. Phillips started coming on and Phillips dropped him hard twice near the end of the fight where Corte barely hung on and Phillips, I think, lost by a point. Yeah, dude, it's a... Verno was one of those dudes who was like, he was not a heavy puncher, but he threw hard. Like, and he was know, crafty too in his own way. Yep. Yep. Not super tall. And he was always like coming up, you know. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. was a, he was a fun dude to watch. And he was on Friday Night Fights and like that level 
in ESPN. Yeah, yeah. And even before Friday Night Flights, like he was around up from like the late 80s That's all the way true, yeah. early into the 2000s. Yeah, man, he had a long career. That's true. Yeah. I wonder how that guy is. I haven't, I haven't heard mum from dude. I hope he'll be doing all right. Uh, He's a fun guy to watch for a while. Wonder whatever happened to that dog. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, unfortunately, I think doggies probably does not have the, uh, the, the shelf life to. I, I mean, uh, of course not, but I'm curious what happened afterwards. Did JC Candelo ever get his dog back? <laughs> I hope so. Because a man without his dog, man, it's bad That's stuff. Bullshit. It's bad stuff. Well, I got another one. Uh, let's see. It's about, yeah, so probably don't have too much time left here, but nonetheless, I got another one that I think is a really yeah, good one that I think that I think you're going to like too. Cause I know it's one that I think that you've brought up on a different show. Just can't remember for what and that's Ray Mercer versus Jesse Ferguson. Yes. <laughs> and, oh. and it's interesting too, because it's not so much a rivalry where these guys like outright hate right. each other, but yeah. it's just the circumstances that came about it exactly. that like made it become one. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not, this was not a situation where you have, uh, two fighters where you know they really are like just different people and they just don't like each other because they didn't get along or something like that but you know you have uh it was actually a, a, a paper it was on pay-per-view 10 round fight and uh back in 1993 and so basically there was i guess the what had happened between them was really the only selling point of the fight because it's not like jesse ferguson was like anybody to like you know write home about or you know bust plans for or anything like that but yeah hey, nah, he had a, he had he had definitely settled in as a journeyman and you know it's the gatekeeper at that point yeah definitely. it's just that i guess he wouldn't he was pesky enough to ray mercer the first time that he was you know uh trying to literally mid-fight <laughs> trying to bribe the dude to lay down mid-fight <laughs> because he's having a difficult time during the fight a more difficult time I, well, it's, here's the thing: is it's that like, so crazy? Like, it was on the undercard. It was on the undercard, I believe, on the undercard of uh, Riddick Bow, uh, Michael Moore, yeah. not Michael Moore, on um, Riddick Bow, Michael Dokes. Yes, yeah. And Mercer was next in line to fight Bow. They already had their, and those two had their own grudge at that point. And from Sarge, the dude, this was when he was hot. This is when Sarge yes. was hot. You know, like he had lost to Larry Holmes, but I mean, he was still like, he still was reeling or riding off that knockout of Tom Morrison. It was still yeah, you know, exactly as a high level contender. And like I said, him and Bo had a rivalry. Those two didn't like each other. They were beefing a lot from the Olympics. And like, Larry actually looked pretty decent that night. So it was kind of like. Yeah, exactly. To the point where their managers hate each other too. Mark Roberts and, and um, uh, Rock Newman, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, there's a interesting, there was a, infamous scene on Tuesday night fights where Newman actually shoves Roberts across the room when they were arguing, talking about why the fight hadn't happened yet because they tried to make the fight and they were blaming each other for why it didn't happen. So long story short, Mercer was finally in line to fight challenge bowl for the title. And so Mercer, as you, as we found out what happened from time to time in his career, just didn't come in motivated that night. He just didn't have it. Some days he came in and would give, you know, could give you hell. This time he just didn't. And a guy like Jesse Ferguson, even though he had established himself at that point as not being, you know, quite at the top of where those other guys were, if you came in underprepared, he was a tough enough guy and a crafty enough guy that he could out hustle you. He could do that. You know, that's what journeyman guys do. That's what gatekeepers do. If you don't come in at your peak and just, you know, you had to take care of business, they could yeah, surprise well, you. Michael bent your ass. Exactly. They could totally surprise you. So Ferguson was just going about it and Mercer was looking like shit. And so 
during the fight, you started hearing there was rumblings that they were clearly talking, but that's when Ferguson was saying that Mercer was going, hey, man, you know, 100K. He was like, I just don't have it tonight. I'll give you 100K to lay down. I promise you, man, that's your cut, all right? I'll pay it to you after. I swear on my mother, I'll pay you 100K to lay down. I just don't have it. And then Ferguson something to the effect of, you should have trained tonight, Ray, and then kept on working him and then ended up scoring a decision. But hearing all that talk brought a lot of, lot of attention, a lot of controversy to the point where there was a, um, a hearing too, right? Yeah, dude, they, they launched uh, an investigation and yeah. basically uh, uh, it sounded like Ferguson was one of the ones who like kind of, he didn't push for it, but they went to him and he was just like, yep, yeah, yep, that's what he was saying. The but they couldn't story. like they couldn't really you couldn't well you heard them talking you couldn't really different you know you couldn't really understand what they were saying either yeah. so it was kind of like yeah but. well and it's in the middle of a fight and shit too but nonetheless mm -hmm. like dude that's what the criminal shit about it is that his jab alone he could have just dominated that fight on his jab alone yeah, if he actually tried and actually trained what's a all accounts he totally didn't then he could have because you know that I don't know who was in charge of the rematch, who promoted it. I'm gonna say Bob Arum or somebody, but they ended up having a rematch, which they put on pay per view. Yeah, the yeah the the rematch was on pay per view, and it yeah. was top rank. Yeah, there you go. So, because that just seems like a Bob Arum thing to do to try to like you know to to, to use that as a storyline to build to a rematch on right. pay per view. Instead By of all going, accounts, it was a really awful pay per view. Instead of fucking <laughs> distancing yourself and being like, yeah, I don't want any part of that shit. Going, oh yeah, look at that shit. Let's use that as a promotional selling point. Yeah, Jesus Christ, buddy. Sun City. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Sun <laughs> what what City, man. But yeah, so that's that's what that went about. But it was interesting too was that Jesse Ferguson, journeyman extraordinaire ended up getting the the Riddick Bow title fight because of it. Well, dude, I mean, that's what's going to happen, bro. You know, like, it, that's what a waste. But sometimes, of usually, if a guy gets upset like that, um, if Aram's in charge, they use, sometimes they'll just ignore it, like he did with, you know, Zahir Rahim, with Eric Morales. What? What? The fight's not off. I don't care if he lost. The fight's not off at all. I don't know. And how they initially did it with Mayweather Judah, too, because Zab had just yeah, lost the exactly. Valdemir. Zab had just lost there in the same thing. Zab immediately still went in with him. But with this one instead, now they put Jesse Ferguson in there. And, you know, Bo looked at his absolute peak destroying Ferguson because, look, man, Ferguson had absolutely no business being in the ring with Bo that night. But Yeah, dude. That's, That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I guess I didn't really think about that as like a grudge match per se, but like the things leading to no, the, for sure. the second fight for even sure. happening. And it actually stopped the grudge match from taking place because, like I said, Bo and uh, Ray Mercer hated each other back then. But, yeah, there, there was a few others over the years, too, as we kind of finish up. You know, everybody knows the story about Fernando Vargas and Oscar De La Hoya and <laughs> how much those two hated each other. In and the snow. And, yeah, in the snow and that <laughs> Vargas said he got snubbed and kicked and, you know, Var De La Hoya ran by and just laughed at him, but... Whatever it was, it built up the animosity. So when they finally had that fight, man, that was that was an awesome fight. That was a really, was really awesome, awesome fight. fight but... You almost got to feel bad for Vargas that he held on to that shit for that many years and then winds up getting whooped despite being on steroids. I'm just about going to say, man. And then he takes steroids, gets himself jacked to the gills. Everything trying to be in his favor. Like Start you did out everything. Well and still gets out. You did everything and still lost you and still lost and not only lost just got spectacularly knocked out because yeah. that was a dramatic hook that delahoya landed the way vargas just dropped like a log yeah, and then then just kadak, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Ass. yeah. 
or for Dando, bro. No, that's a, that's <laughs> a never, good one. And he and never actually, from that. It's, that's a good one, and it's actually especially a good one because it kind of fits into that kind of crosstown rivalry shit too a little bit. Because oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Even though it's not technically the same town, Fernando's from Oxnard, north of L.A., and uh, but they did that with all Delahoya fights back then. Remember, everything yeah. was a cross town rivalry with him and Ruelas, him and yeah, um, Ruelas, yeah, and yeah. you know, Ruelas yeah, one definitely. There's anybody who's remotely from Southern California, they're like, oh, they hate each other from way back, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. So now that's a, that's a pretty good one. I had a couple other others written down that I was just gonna bring up. Oh, well, here's one that I didn't bring up that's easy and you know, could be brought up on any grudge match list or whatever and that's ray leonard versus duran um i mean i guess hearns kind of was but i don't i don't know that they really like hated each other i don't think it was like i, I think it was no nah, i don't think they hated each other so much that hearns was just bitter and just waiting to get a rematch and as long as he couldn't he finally did and like we mentioned you only get a draw out of it that just kind of you know left him with a bad taste in his mouth but yeah duran leonard was an actual grudge match i mean yeah, dude. you can't you 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 can't play off how Duran acted, you know. Yeah, if one of the dudes is going over wife, and grabbing his dick in your wife's face. That's a great yeah, match, flipping bro. her off and doing all kinds yeah. of other things like that. Man, that dude was wild, yo. Yeah, it's just a grudge match. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And a, and a and a and a and a great one too. I mean, because Duran is the only guy that was able to get Leonard to like get off of his game plan and try to fight him man to man because he was so pissed off. For some reason, dude, I don't know why this is, but the timeline in my head just does not compute with Ray Leonard's career. Because for some reason in my head, I keep thinking that the Hearns fights uh, happened before Duran. Like, I don't know why, but for some reason, it's just like there's some myth, you know, some misfire in my brain that just Mm -hmm. wants to tell me that Hearns happened before Duran. I don't know why, but regardless, (laughs) yeah, dude, uh, the idea that Roberto Duran could come up from 135 pounds, get in there with a dude who's a good sized welterweight and, you know, has the kind of body type where he could put on weight and be okay. He's already super fast, sharp, good puncher, uh, impressive in just about every way. Can be touched though. You know, he got out of a few fights with like a swollen eye and shit like that. No, he didn't. Yeah. Leonard wasn't, you know, he could be touched a little bit. Yeah. He wasn't untouchable, but he was also very offensive. And when a fighter's offensive, they're there to be hit more. And so it happens. It's just what it is. But even so the idea that Duran could, you know, put on weight from a go from 135 pounds where he was dominant to 147, like, you know, straight away, basically go straight at Ray Leonard. And then not only that, but like outman him, you know, not necessarily like that was a, cl- a super close fight. Actually, I think both fights were really close. That's what kind of sucks about the rematch, especially. But the first fight, uh, super close. I remember one judge wound up scoring like fucking like nine even rounds or some shit like that. Like there's if you go to the box rec page, they have the scores on there. And one of the scores is like, how did he get that? And then if I, there was the scorecard somewhere in the newspaper, I think. And the newspaper mentions that the dude scored like eight or nine even rounds or some crazy shit. But it was a close fight. It wasn't like Duran dominated whatsoever, dude. It was a very back and forth fight. It was just that the moments that Duran won, he definitely won more dramatically and bigger. And, and he clearly he also, won the fight. Like it was a close fight, but he definitely won that fight. And it's yeah. and it stands in the test of time as maybe one of the top three great. It definitely top three greatest victories in boxing history. Like, it's just incredible, you no know? No question. Absolutely. 
yeah, the way that both guys at their peak, everything the way it went, and Durant came out on top. And you can't really say it was controversial. I yeah. mean, close fight, yes, controversial, no. That'd be taxed his ass in Montreal, dude. So, and it's a it's a good fight too. But then going into the rematch, you know, there was so much. Uh, Ray Leonard was able to turn the bad blood on his part into motivation. Mm-hmm. And he was able to, to make sure he got the fight quick enough that Durant was still partying and just didn't come in in peak shape. It was still a close fight, but Durant, you know, Leonard was clearly a dip, you know, just on a, another level kind of motivation wise. Yeah. And when well, he started, and he his knew anger, that gamesmanship. He understood he that. He obviously understood that better than anybody working with Durant. Absolutely. And that's when he started playing those games. You could tell, I think the one that really set Durant off more than anything is when Leonard did the wind up and then smacked him with a jab in the face. And Durant literally, you just, you knew at that point, he was like so disrespected and like, to, like, yeah. it's like, like he was brother, made to look dude. a fool. Yeah. At it's that like point, he was brother just, fucking with you and you can't yeah. do nothing about it. You're just, and at that point, he was just like, oh my God. Like, that's why he was like, hell with this. Like, screw this shit. Like, I'm done, you know? And like I said, the, the fight was still fairly close. It wasn't even like Ray Leonard yeah. was like whooping his ass. No, like, no, it was, it was fairly close. close. And if you notice too, right after Duran says no mas, you can, for like a moment, you, he wants to go fight again. Yeah, like, he, like he, he like he turns to square back, but then he's like, because yeah. like he just, he just realized, I think like the error of his mistake. And he's like, no, 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 okay, I'll fight again. And they're like, no, you already quit. And he's just kind of like. That's so shitty. That's. Every single time I post a photo of Roberto Duran, somebody says it. And I'm just like, shut up. I mean, you know, it took him years to, to break out of that no loss thing too, but he eventually did. But um, the less said about their third fight, the better. We'll just keep it at that. <laughs> yeah, no shit, bro. Well, dude, fucking grudge matches, man. I will say that emotional part of boxing, you know, the part of boxing where uh, there's extra stuff going on around the ring. Like, like we talk about like fighters being gentlemen and like rules and like protocols. Some people just like hold it. Yeah. Some people just hate, man. And, and some people do really well with like, you know, acting within the rules and keeping it classy and all that sort of stuff. But like the emotional part of boxing, you know, that, that helps make it fun sometimes. Oh yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the beauty of boxing. When you got two guys that generally hate each other, and can't wait to get it on you know that it's going to be exciting because of that and that like whatever happens at least it's going to be settled that's what makes the sport beautiful you know what i mean and yeah. you hope that the, you hope that the dust gets settled you can't it doesn't happen all the time like we mentioned paz and how can still hate each other um if you really want to go way way far back like we were mentioning before we started recording joe chowinski held a grudge with bob fitzsimmons all the way till his death the man was interviewed in 1943 the year of his death and he was still talking shit about Fitzsimmons, how much he couldn't stand him and how he was a backstabber and you couldn't trust him. And he got lucky in all of his wins and all this other stuff. So like some people just hold grudges. They can't help it. But at least in, most of the time in sport of boxing, you think that after you shed blood with the guy, you go there back and forth, you wore it out and then it's over. You know, I myself am a grudge holder. So yeah. I understand that <laughs> I'm extremely, very much a grudge holder. So I, can't I trust that for Simmons. Trust me. If any of my other guys were still around, they tell you the same thing. <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, and from, from all uh, account, or at least from the accounts that I have read and based on who Koyensky was always hanging out with, I'd probably side with Fitzy on this one personally, <laughs> but that's just me. Yeah. Look, dude, I, I appreciate you. Uh, talking grudge matches dude thanks for the great count on con on uh brooke con you know you did a great job of course and thanks, it was a lot of fun dude. a lot of fun, fun talking history of course with you once more 
Yeah, bro, this was a blast. I had a lot of fun going down memory lane today. Thank you so much, everybody who tuned in. We really appreciate you doing so. If you tuned in on YouTube, for instance, if you would go ahead and subscribe, leave a comment, very much appreciated. If you if you tuned in via any of the podcast apps, also subscribe there. Leaving a comment or review is also very much appreciated there. However, in the meantime, while you're waiting for a new episode, if you've listened to the, all of this one, go ahead and on social media, for instance, Twitter, Follow my dude, Eris Pina, there at Punch Zone Eris. Follow me, Patrick Connor, at Patrick M. Connor. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, those sorts of things. And yeah, man, Eris, I will talk to you soon, bro. Have a good one. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take it easy, people. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.